Today is uh, day one of our autumn seven-day session, 6th of May 2018. And um, for this first part of the session, we're going to be um, reading from Cultivating the Empty Field, The Silent Illumination of Zen Master Hong Zhe, translated by Taigen Daniel Layton with Yi Wu. And uh, I'm going to start off today just uh, giving some background material before we actually get into the text. And we'll be reading from uh, passages, uh, excerpts from the preface and the introduction to this book. And one of the one of the, um, the just the first things to to um, point out is just what a um, an important figure Hang Zhe uh, is for us in our practice and in in uh, Chan in Zen, particularly in in uh, Soto uh, Zen. Uh, Leighton says in his preface, Hongzhe was the first master fully to articulate silent illumination, a form of non-dual, objectless meditation in which the essence of Buddhist truth is experienced. Called just sitting in Japan, Shikantaza, this practice has striking similarities to the Tibetan Mahamudra and Dzogchen, other examples of non-dualistic meditation teachings in the Buddhist tradition. Hongzhe is of paramount importance in the history of the development of Chan Zen meditation practice, particularly as a primary precursor of the famed Japanese Zen pioneer Dogen. Hongzhe left a vast body of writings celebrated for their eloquence, which were preserved by his disciples in the extensive record of Chan Master Hongzhe. Composed of nine volumes, these writings include poetry, sermons, informal talks and sayings, instructions to individual students, and collections of old teaching stories. And what we're going to be reading from um, is um, uh, volume six, which is, is uh, practice instructions. And this book also includes uh, some uh, religious verses, but we probably won't get on to those in this session. Leighton says, uh, the silent illumination that Zen Master Hongzhe expounds is both a form of sitting meditation practice and an orientation to a spiritual way of life. His meditation instructions do not specify yogic postures or rituals such as would have been familiar to his students at the temple where he taught. Instead, his writings display the many facets of the universally available experience of non-dual objectless meditation and the endless refinements and attunements involved in living out this awareness. Um, the, the, his writing is very, very poetic 
and um, although these section, these passages that we're going to read are called practice instructions, they're um, they're more like descriptions of of uh, practice rather than instructive. And so we'll also be um, drawing on other other sources to to look into the um, into the nuts and bolts of this practice. And uh, which we don't find in this text, as as Leighton says, he doesn't specify yogic postures or rituals, and probably because um, his congregation would have been um, already familiar with these. But for us, the um, uh, nuts and bolts are important, especially in this particularly subtle practice. We're skipping around here a little bit later. Later, it says, um, goes into this um, description of silent illuminations as being objectless. Silent illumination is objectless in the sense of not seeking after specific limited goals. And and really, we could we could say this about about. Um, other practices that we do in our tradition as well. Um, breath practice uh, and also koan work. Although koan work involves um, this questioning, questioning mind, uh, it is equally important in working on a koan to um, not be focused on, on any kind of goal that we can imagine or conceptualize. Because it just get that just gets in the way. The ultimate purpose of spiritual practice, universally awakened heart mind, cannot be set apart from our own inherent being and our immediate moment to moment awareness. That's a very important point. Um, we don't have to somehow import something from elsewhere to experience our universally awakened heart-mind. And this, this heart-mind here is um, a more accurate translation of the, the, the Chinese and Japanese character that is usually just translated as mind. Um, shin in Chinese or shin and um, kokoro or shin in Japanese and the, the character for this is um, is kind of a, a stylized depiction of the heart and uh, in uh, Asia there isn't a the kind of um, sharp um, dualistic understanding of, of, our, of mind versus emotions that you find in Western culture. So if we can think in terms of our heart-mind that includes both, both our discriminating mind and, and, and emotions as well. So let me just read that sentence again. The ultimate purpose of spiritual practice 
universally awakened heart-mind cannot be set apart from our own inherent being and our immediate moment-to-moment awareness. And this, this, is, this immediate moment-to-moment awareness is what we are seeking to realize in our practice and our training. If we can be said to be seeking anything. As Hongzhi emphasizes, the entire practice rests on the faith verified in experience that the field of vast brightness is ours from the outset. The practitioner's exertion and dedication are devoted to manifesting this ultimate truth with con- constancy right in ordinary existence. Silent illumination is thus fully experienced in meditative contemplation and then naturally expressed in sincere, compassionate behavior in the world. Another very uh, helpful summing up of, of what we're doing in practice. So let me just say that sentence again. Silent illumination is thus fully experienced in meditative contemplation, that means when we're sitting, and then naturally expressed in sincere, compassionate behavior in the world, that everything else we do, all our relationships. Hongzhi's silent illumination is of great relevance to contemporary spiritual seekers. His teachings are important as a primary source for Dogen, whose work remains highly influential in Zen practice. Even more, Hongzhi is valuable to us as a lucid guide, beyond any particular tradition, to the subtleties of spiritual awareness and its life in the world. Hongzhou's vast luminous Buddha field is the field of Buddha nature, our inalienable endowment of wisdom. Hongzhou tells us that this bright empty field, which lies imminent in us all, can in no way be cultivated or artificially enhanced. We must only recognize it and not allow our busy, mischievous thinking and conditioning to interfere with our own radiant clarity. This is absolutely true, but at the same time, we are engaged in cultivation, and hence the title of this book, Cultivating the Empty Field. Uh, Cultivating the bright empty field that can't be cultivated because it's already um, just as as it needs to be. But we don't know that. We don't know it in our bones, and we certainly don't um, live it in our in our all of our uh, interactions. Um, now we just move into a little bit of um, biographical material about Hung Ju. Uh, his full name is Hung Ju Jing Jue, and his dates are 1091 to 1157. And uh, just to to kind of connect that to something in in Western history, 
Um, he's born a little bit out after 1066, the Norman invasion of England. Uh, it's funny that it, that seems so much, so far away in the past to me anyway. Um, and somehow Hongzhi um, feels a lot closer than that. But um, yeah, nearly <clears throat> nearly a thousand years ago. He was born in Sijiao in present-day Shanxi province to a family named Li. Uh, although Hongzhi or vast wisdom was a posthumous name endowed, bespoke, bespoke, bestowed by the emperor. In the interest of clarity and consistency, it is used throughout this work. During his life, he would have been called Jingjui and later Tiantong Jingjui. Jingjui, correct or true awakening, was his monk's ordination name and Tiantong was the name of the mountain where his temple stood. And often the, um, the masters were referred to by the name of the mountain upon which their temple was built. In Japanese, Hongzhi is known as Wanshi Shogaku. And that's the, the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese characters. Um, it can get very confusing uh, with these masters. They often have an ordained name, uh, a posthumous name. They may also use their family name. And then, of course, we have the names in Chinese and in Japanese as well. Um, so it can take a bit of um, effort to um, get to know these different different names. Uh, for instance, in the, the translation of the Book of Serenity, which was um, uh, one of Hongzhi's um, literary efforts, um, He's always referred to as Tian Tong, not as Hongzhi. This Tian Tong temple, which is mentioned here, um, still exists. It, it um, is in the, the mountains outside the um, city of Ningbo in southern China. And um, It's uh, one of the few places you, where you can go to um, where it might be quite like it was when um, Hongzhi was there in the sense that it's got a, um, a national park around it and so that the whole area is forested, which is very unusual in, in China. Richard and I went there when we were on pilgrimage in 2001 and uh, it was also the same place um, uh, a few generations later that Dogen trained at and it was extremely moving to be looking out on on the mountains that these great masters would have seen from their temple. 
hearing the bird sounds and uh, uh, experiencing that location. Uh, Hongzhou was a very intelligent child, memorizing several thousand characters before he was seven years old. His father, Tsung Dao, was a lay disciple of Desun, who was in turn a disciple of Huanglong Huinang, a founder of one of the two main branches of Linji Chan, that's Rinzai Zen. Desun was impressed with Tsung Dao's son and predicted that he would become a vessel of the Dharma, one who realizes and transmits the, the teaching of truth. When he was 11, Hongzhi left home to become a monk. Um, that young age, it's likely that he had his full, the full approval or support of his parents. And when he was 18, he went to um, Ru Zhou in modern Honan province to study with the Soto Zhaodong Zen master Kumo Fa Cheng. His date's at 1071 to 1128. Kumu's style of practice involved sitting meditation so still that his body was said to resemble a block of dry wood, hence his name, which means dry wood complete dharma, the Kumu Fa Cheng. Uh, sometimes this dry wood is is translated as tree stump. And apparently his Zen in his Zendo, um, he and his his disciple monks would be sitting so still that it was like walking through a forest of tree stumps. Hongzhi emulated this practice of upright, immobile meditation throughout his career. Such cross-legged sitting in lotus posture is the fundamental practice for the Soto tradition. The unstated physical context for Hongzhi's meditation instructions. And to this day, uh, stillness remains a, a very important ingredient of our sitting practice. This is why we spend a lot of time um, when people first come to a workshop and after that uh, on instructions for sitting comfortably, um, different leg positions, possibly even in a chair, but the stillness is the important thing. Feeling, being stable and relaxed in order to be able to sit still uh, because uh, body and mind are not two and being able to still our body is a huge um, aid in uh, the process of stilling our minds. It's easier to still the mind when, when the body is still. After a few years, Hongzhi traveled to other temples. At Shangshan, uh, Incense Mountain Temple, Hongzhi overheard a monk reciting the line from 
the flower ornament sutra, that's the Avatamska sutra. The eyes which our parents gave us can behold 3,000 worlds. That's the, that's the quote. Upon hearing this, Hongzhou experienced an awakening. The eyes which our parents gave us can behold 3,000 worlds. The eyes which our parents gave us means our ordinary eyes, our physical eyes. And yet 3,000 worlds it points to um, a very, very far-reaching kind of vision, spiritual vision. Again, not separating these two, the physical and the spiritual. When Hongzhou told Master Shangshan, um, and again, this master too is is his name is taken from um, the mountain he's on, and the temple, the name of the temple as well. When when Hongzhou told Master Shangshan of his experience, Shangshan pointed to a box of box of incense and asked, "What is inside?" Hongzhou said, "What does mind do?" Shangshan asked. Where does your enlightenment come from? Hongzhou drew a circle in the air with his hand and threw it behind him. Shangshan said, you are, you are a man who produces muddiness. What is your capacity? Hongzhou said, mistake. Shangshan said, don't show other people. And Hongzhou said, yes, yes. And then Leighton goes on to say, um, such dialogues have their own logic and function most effectively with minimal explanation. Hongzhou's response to Shang Shan about the incense box reflects his understanding of the total interpenetration of mind and phenomena. Later, Dogen would echo Hongzhou when he called his own life one continuous mistake. Well, here Leighton, of course, says it's better not to explain and then goes, goes ahead and explains it. Um, but it's, it's a, lot, a lot going on in this exchange. What is inside? Shangshan asks and Hanjong replies, what does mind do? He's, he's asked this question in relation to a box of incense. So the, the, the ordinary answer might be to say, well, there's incense in the box. But he says, what does mind do? What, what, you could say, you could say the inside of things is mind. And the outside of mind is things. There's a, there's a line we chant in affirming faith in mind. Mind is mind because of things. Things are things because of mind.
Leighton calls this the total interpenetration of mind and phenomena. But those, those are just concepts, just an, a, a description. It's not the thing itself, which is what we are called upon to realize in our practice for ourselves. His other response is, a, is a, an interesting one. Teacher says, you're a man who produces muddiness. What is your capacity? And the teacher's testing him here by, by criticizing him, you could say. Your mind's not clear. And, and uh, Hongzhou says, mistake. Says Dogen was, would later say that his life was one continuous mistake. As soon as we open our mouths, we make a mistake. Hongzhi left Shangshan and at age 23 arrived at the temple of Danxia Zichen. His dates are 1054 to 1119. Danxia asked him, What is yourself before the empty kalpa? Now this was a way of asking about what is, what is your... Um, what is your true nature? And before the empty kalpa, um, this refers to um, part of Buddhist cosmology where um, the existence of, the, of our universe is said to go through four stages. There's um, becoming, enduring, uh, being destroyed, and then um, the empty kalpa. So an eon of becoming, an eon of enduring, an eon of destruction, and then an eon of, of emptiness. And so this is before all that starts even. What's your mind? And a kalpa is an... Um, we talked about... Richard was talking about this in his... Um, Dharma talk the other night. Um, a kalpa is an immeasurably long period of time. There's a, there's a footnote to this. It says, The self before the empty kalpa, when the material universe does not yet exist, is considered one's essential nature. It is a common Zen expression for probing true self or ultimate understanding, synonymous for the original face, or your face before your parents were born. Kalpa is Sanskrit for a vast duration of time. I hear they give the diff slightly different names for these four cycles. The empty, the becoming, the abiding, and the decaying. So within that, that Buddhist uh, framework, um, The, um, the becoming would be equivalent of the Big Bang, uh, the abiding what we're in now, and then the decaying would be what some um, cosmologists refer to as the Big Crunch. 
everything uh, imploding back into um, into uh, nothingness again before it then explodes out. Some some physicists regard this as the best model of the universe: uh, a series of big uh, big bangs and big crunches. And they give here also a um, uh, one of the classic descriptions of how long a kalpa is. Um, the duration of time described by um, a bird in some versions of a heavenly being that flies once every hundred years over the peak of Mount Everest with a piece of silk in her claws. The length of time it would take for the silk to wear down the mountain completely is said to be one kalpa. So uh, Buddhism loves these these kinds of images which just are, are mind-boggling. So anyhow, back to Dan Xia's question to uh, Hongzhi. What is yourself before the empty kalpa? Hongzhi said, a frog in a well swallows the moon. At midnight, I do not borrow a lantern. Dan Xia said, not yet. As Hongzhi was about to respond, Dan Xia beat him with his whisk and asked, you still say you do not borrow? Hongzhi experienced some understanding and bowed. Dan Xia said, why don't you make a statement? Hongzhi said, today I lost money and was punished. Danxia said, I have no time to beat you up. And just as a footnote here, Danxia appears in our, our ancestral line, in our, the long ancestral line. So um, in our, back, going back directly in our lineage, we have Hongzhi's teacher, but not Hongzhi himself, who's... who's a kind of Dharma uncle to us in our lineage. Leighton says, Hongzhi's response about not borrowing a lantern at midnight expresses the Soto sense of the interfusion of light and darkness. Right in the blackness of merging with emptiness, the light of differentiation naturally emerges. This is a little bit like the yin-yang um, symbols of Taoism. Uh, furthermore, in the introspective withdrawal from attachment to sense phenomena, one's own inner illumination appears. So dark and light, light and dark. Hongzhi's response also refers to the story of a monk departing from his teacher in the middle of the night. The teacher handed the student a lantern, but then, as the student started out into the dark, blew out the flame, whereupon the student was awakened. This is um, uh, Toksan and Yutan, appears in the um, Mumonkan. Um, the student was awakened when the teacher blew out the lantern, when everything went dark. Danxia, however, did not accept Hongzhou's first answer and picked up on his word borrow to emphasize the student's relationship to the teacher and the necessity of intimately experiencing truth.
Dan Xia Zichun was a Dharma brother of Hongzhou's former teacher Kumu, both disciples of the famed master Furung Daokai. Um, and Furung, Furung was a revitalizer of um, the, the Soto school, um, establishing the, the standards for the monastic community that are still in, in force today, largely. Hongzhou spent several years studying with Dan Xia Zichun, following him when Dan Xia moved from his temple on Dan Xia Mountain to Honan, in Honan to Mount Da Cheng and later to Mount Dae Hong in Hupei. These are different provinces of China. In both places, he took the position of first seat as Dan Xia's teaching assistant. Before Dan Xia's death in 1119, Hongzhou received his seal of transmission, which certified Hongzhou's understanding and qualification to teach the Dharma. And he then lived in various temples, uh, visiting uh, different masters. Among these was uh, Yuan Wu Kechen, he states at 1063 to 1135. And um, Yuan Wu, of course, is famous for um, his collection of koans, the Blue Cliff Record. So Leighton says Hongzhou's study with Yuan Wu probably gave him some familiarity with formal koan pra practice as done in the Rinzai school of that time. And um, we'll get into this more later, but Hongzhou later compiled his own collection of a hundred koans, um, which eventually became back, was called the Book of Serenity, Shoyoroku. In 1129, Hongzhou accepted an invitation to teach at the Jingdei Bright Virtue Monastery on Mount Tiantong in Ming Province in modern Zhejiang. When Hongzhou arrived, the Jingdei Monastery was small and in disrepair. Under Hongzhou's supervision, the temple was reconstructed and eventually accommodated 1,200 monks. Its huge meditation hall could hold all the monks drawn to his rich teaching. Hongzhou seems to have been unflappable amid the difficulties of this expansion. Uh, when, we, when we visited Tiantong, um, monastery, um, we were befriended by um, a young man from the, the Red Army who was, who was visiting a friend of his who was a monk at this temple and he spoke a little bit of English and, and so he and the monk showed us around a bit and they took us to the graveyard where Hongzhou's grave was and they pointed to um, buildings a little, little bit further on from the grave um, and said, oh, that's the old monastery. <laughs> of course, the new monastery seemed very old to us, but the old monastery was, was um, even older. And, this, and here it was probably the part that was there when Hongzhou came and then Hongzhou built the new part which was much, much larger and much, much larger and grander 
um, down the hill. But for, for New Zealanders, it, um, these, these kinds of ages on, on buildings are quite uh, uh, staggering. This was a period of political and social turmoil in China, often accompanied by sporadic disruptions of agriculture and widespread hunger. Although it was no longer the custom in Zen temples, Hongzhou himself took no food after noon. On various occasions, he donated food from the temple supply to nearby villages, thereby saving many lives. From his arrival in 1129, Hongzhou remained on Mount, Mount Tiantong, refusing all invitations to leave. He was widely learned, accomplished in Confucian and other classical uh, Chinese lore, and was able to apply his erudition and eloquence to the teaching of Zen pr practice. And we'll see, he really was a great poet. His, uh, even in translation, there's a, there's a wonderful... Um, sense to his his writings. In autumn of 1157, Hongzhou journeyed down the mountain for the first time in nearly 30 years. He visited local military and government officials and lay patrons of his temple to say goodbye and thank them for their support. He returned to Jingdei Temple on November 10th and the next morning bathed, put on fresh robes, and went to the Dharma Hall, where he gave a farewell talk to his monks. He asked his attendant for a brush and wrote a letter to his colleague and sometime critic, the Zen teacher Da Wei Zunggao, asking him to take charge of the temple. Then Hongzhou wrote, Illusory dreams, phantom flowers, 67 years, a white bird vanishes in the mist. Autumn waters merge with the sky. And of course this was um, November, so it was in fact autumn. Illusory dreams, phantom flowers. 67 years, a white bird vanishes in the mist. Autumn waters merge with the sky. He then passed away in formal meditation position. It is said that his body remained fresh in its coffin for seven days. This is, um, this is something that is quite often reported after the death of a master, a meditation master. In fact, um, it's, it has um, happened also in New Zealand. There was a, a lama, Tabtin Rinpoche, um, in Dunedin who um, whose body was said to have remained um, fresh for 18 days after his death. Six months later, the Southern Song Emperor Gao Tsong gave him the posthumous title Hongzhi Chanshu, Chan Master, Vast Wisdom. Hongzhi's immediate influence was maintained through his numerous direct successors. And um, eight of these we know from, from biographies which appear in a, a particular collection of, of 
biographies of masters. Um, so they're just the ones that were well known enough to get into the into the biography. Now moving on <clears throat> from biographic biographical material to um, some background on on the silent illumination. Despite Hongzhou's extraordinary literary expression of Dharma, he has been most noted in many historical surveys of Zen for an alleged dispute with the prominent Rinzai Zen teacher Da Hui Zonggao. Da Hui criticized silent illumination meditation as leading to excessive quietism and neglect of enlightenment. But Hongzhou and Da Hui were actually friends who cooperated as teaching colleagues. Indeed, Da Hui at times visited Hongzhou and sent students to him. Da Hui's criticism was thus not directed personally at Hongzhou, but at some of his followers. Hongzhou in turn refrained from any comment on Da Hui's criticism of his meditation teaching and sent food to help Da Hui's temple when it faced shortages. As previously mentioned, just before his death, Hongzhou wrote a will requesting that Da Hui take charge of his affairs. Um, in other words, to be his <coughs> spiritual executor. And it's, it's recorded in, in the collections of Da Hui's teachings that um, in his eulogy for um, Hongzhou, he said, um, who else can be my intimate friend? So it was a very, a very close um, friendship that existed between these two masters. Later adherents of the Rinzai and, and Soto schools, as well as writers of Zen histories, sometimes made much of the supposed disagreement between Da Hui and Hongzhou. But despite differing teaching styles and praxis emphases, Soto and Rinzai teachers have a tradition of cooperating in their work with students, as did their early progenitors, Shirto and Matsu, the sort of founders of these two lineages. In fact, when the Soto lineage in China almost died out, it was preserved by a Rinzai master. Eihei Dogen, considered the founder of Soto in Japan, uh, also succeeded to the Rinzai tradition in Japan before finding his Soto master in China and later refused even to identify with such a thing as the Zen school, much less Soto or Rinzai. Um, it's maybe just part of the human, uh, human 
condition, though, that we, we love disputes, we love conflict, there's more drama to them. And so perhaps this is one of the reasons why um, this uh, was the aspect of, of the relationship that was, that was uh, emphasised. But it's very important to understand that this, this sort of the separation, Soto and, and Rinzai, is something more that, that um, developed in Japan and then was projected back onto the situation in China. Um, our own tradition uh, represents a, a reuniting of those two streams in that um, Roshi Kaplow's um, first main teacher, um, Harada, Roshi um, had both uh, training in Soto and Rinzai. And so we, we call our, our tradition um, integral Zen, bringing back these two streams and um, seeing these the different practices that are uh, really wrongly ascribed to to um, Sao Dong and um, Linji as being their exclusive practices, the silent illumination for Sao Dong and, and koan work for for uh, Linji. Um, that this is a, this is a, a false uh, dichotomy that these these practices um, complement each other and uh, can be practiced uh, and are practiced by one and the same person. But even if the nature of his criticism has been distorted, the questions Dahui raised about silent illumination are very useful for examining the re relevance and practicality of Hongzhou's teaching and seeing the possibilities for its misapplication. The issues and excesses that concerned Dahui are still alive in modern Zen practice and can be seen reflected in potential imbalances imbalances in all spiritual traditions. Instead of silent illumination, Dahui especially promoted the practice of meditation using koans as objects. Dahui's advocacy of an intent contemplation of koans aimed at dramatic opening and enlightening experiences was due largely to his own dedication to working not only with monks but also with lay people, including social and political leaders, and also women, unusually for that time. Dahui encouraged lay people to engage in personally transformative spiritual practice, rather than merely uh, subsidizing monastic institutions. Given the pressures of political and social upheaval facing his students, he believed that the dynamism of formal koan practice was more accessible to them than the less dramatic traditional sitting meditation that was the format for silent illumination. Of course, you, you practice koans while, while sitting. Um, uh, it sounds a little bit like you don't here, but I guess the difference is that in silent illumination, the sitting is itself 
um, the practice, just sitting. He also believed koans more efficacious for awakening experience, which, experiences, which he seems to have valued above the ongoing deepening and maturing of inherent awakening that silent illumination emphasizes. It's interesting that also Hakuin, much many, many um, centuries later, also saw koans as being particularly suitable for busy people. Uh, you see this in the letters he wrote to um, students who he um, guided at long distance and um, koans of uh, practice that can be done um, very effectively in inactivity. Well, um, our time is up, so we'll, we'll stop here and continue, finish this off uh, tomorrow. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endlessly blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain.